At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti. Sean Cherry. Really good episode this week. Uh, two interesting conversations, uh, and I appreciate the time of both of these guys. First up is the ESPN NFL college football analyst, Booger McFarland. He, of course, spent the past two years as one of the analysts on Monday Night Football. And um, as Booger always is, or at least in my experiences with Booger, incredibly honest, transparent, interesting, thoughtful. And we go through everything about Monday Night Football and um, how he found out that he wasn't coming back, his thoughts about not coming back, some of the things he might uh, do over again, and obviously the criticism, which was massive when it comes to Monday Night Football. So Booger McFarlane first up. He's followed by Barry Landis. Barry Landis is, um, a, is Fox's lead producer for NASCAR, as well as one of their NFL producers, works a lot with Kenny Albert. I have found Fox's NASCAR coverage over the last couple of weeks exceptional. Um, I thought they did a really, really great job in Darlington just navigating and managing so many different things. And so I talked to Barry about how one puts on a NASCAR race during a pandemic and the challenges that go into that production. So Booger McFarland up first, followed by Barry Landis, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Booger McFarland is an ESPN NFL and college football analyst. He has spent the last two years as one of the analysts on Monday Night Football. Previously at ESPN, did uh, college football for ESPN as well as the SEC Network. I think people know he played in the NFL uh, for a number of years and uh, most well-known, of course, with the Bucks, And we'll get into that a little bit by the end of the podcast. He's been on this podcast before. I've talked to him a number of times. I always find him uh, transparent and interesting, and I'm glad he's uh, come back this week. Booger McFarland, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Richard. All right, let's start off with this, Booger. Um, and this is something we've been asking our guests over the last uh, two months or so, and that's uh, how are you and your family doing, and how's everybody's health, and you know what has this 70-plus day stretch been like for you and yours? Oh, first of all, thanks for asking. We're well, man. Uh, you know, down in Florida, uh, we're obviously practicing the social distancing like everyone else, and you know, with the last couple months of school, uh, having kids at home, uh, my wife has been the uh, the teacher mostly, and, and I've been the, 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 the PE teacher and better known around these parts as Coach Dad. And, you know, I try to get my kids outside and, you know, we uh, we exercise and we run and uh, I can be a little tough, 
And, you know, I get a lot of complaining that Coach Dad is unfair and Coach Dad is too hard. But, uh, you know, we've been trying to make the best out of it, just like everyone else, man. You know, I, I've always lived by the theory in life, man, that, you know, when life gives you lemons, uh, you go make lemonade. Don't don't complain. Don't frown about it. And so I think, you know, like everyone else and all the parents around the country, you know, you're trying to make the best of it as far as, you know, getting, finishing the school year with your kids, giving them um, as much um, of an education as you can being at home teachers and then also try to make it fun and try to, you know, try to come up with a routine because, you know, when you can get a routine in your life and you can have things to look forward to, whether your kids are adults, it, it, it seems to make things go by a little smoother. So, uh, we're well, we, we've, uh, we've kind of finished that school is ending again the next day or so. So, uh, all in all, we're good, man. Thanks for asking. What is your, what have you found to be your best parenting tip? during the middle of a pandemic? Have patience, man, because, you know, you, you never know um, how or, or in what manner each kid is going to learn. I, I think that's the, one of the greatest gifts that our teachers have is teachers are able to pinpoint what makes certain kids tick and how to teach certain things to one kid and then switch it up entirely for another. And as parents, you, you know, we're used to just complaining to the teacher, well, you know, Johnny doesn't get it. Get that. What are you doing? Are you going to help him? What about extra credit? And we don't realize all that it goes into, uh, all that goes into it for the kids and the parents and the teachers, man. It's just been so much uh, that I've learned. It's opened my eyes. You know, I knew that the teachers were really, really important and really great. But being kind of at-home teachers the last couple of months has really opened my eyes just how important and how fantastic our teachers are around the country, man, and just have patience. Teachers teachers are the most patient people, I think, that um, I've been around, you know, teachers and parents and teachers even on a different level because they have to be patient with other people's kids. You know, as parents, you know, you, you kind of have to be patient with your kids, but teachers, man, you got to do it with kids that you don't know and that you're learning and you're cultivating relationships with. So just have patience and um, try to make the best of it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had obviously, I'm a son of a teacher, so I had incredible uh, respect for teachers prior to this. But man, if this does not sort of remind you of just the importance of teachers and how good they are uh, and how important they are, nothing will. Uh, yeah. I mean, it would be, <laughs> I would kill right now for my kids to be in school. So uh, it's it's been eye-opening. Yeah. And you got the twins, man. So I, I can imagine what you're dealing with with the, with the twins, man. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's the NCAA tournament every year here. Survive in advance, basically on a daily basis. Uh, that's, that's pretty much what we're we're working on right now. Um, all right. I'll, obviously, you know, I have to get to Monday Night Football, um, just given that's the thing that most people know you for, and um, there's been a um, significant change in that for ESPN and for you. So let's start off here, Booger. Um, how did you learn? that you were not returning to Monday Night Football for 2020? I got a call and, you know, I had a meeting. And, you know, within that meeting, I was informed. Um, it didn't happen uh, when the news broke. It was a little bit before. Uh, I'm not going to get into exactly the timetable, but uh, it was far enough in advance. Was there? It was far enough in advance where it wasn't a surprise for me. And how did you view the decision by ESPN management when you were told that you were not going to come back? Uh, I mean, it was the decision that they made. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, when you look at 
the powers that be, you know, that they made a decision that they wanted to go in a different direction. And it's, it's kind of uh, indicative in, in any business and really indicative of, of the business that I come from, of pro football, you know, when upper management, whether it's ownership or GM uh, in football, says, okay, we want to uh, go with a different three technique, like when I was in Tampa and I got traded to Indianapolis. Um, it was a, it was an eye-opening experience. You deal with it and you move on. And so, uh, it was, it was really no different. You know, I, I've said often that kind of football, um, my entire life has prepared me for the life after football. And, and it's really held true, uh, each and every step of the way. And with this decision, it was no different. You know, you had that meeting. Hey, we want to move in a different direction. Uh, can you ex- explain and tell me why? Uh, and, you know, when, when you go through those different scenarios as far as the why, you know, you don't really you're – not, you're not necessarily going to get um, what I would think is their true feeling. You know, what you get is, you know, we want to go in a different direction. Uh, it's nothing against you. Uh, we just want to go uh, and, and, and change it up. And, okay, I accept it and you move on. I mean, it, it was literally that simple for me. Did you try to make the case at all to – to go one more year? Did you, did you, you know, I'm not going to mention, or I'm not going to ask you what management person at ESPN you had this conversation with or management people, but whoever it was, did you, did you try to advocate for yourself to have one more year to see how it would go? Uh, no, I didn't because I, I, I think, you know, what I've learned when you get to this point, um, again, uh, it's kind of like when I got traded, you know, when, when I get the call and say, Hey, you know, you've been traded. There's no need to advocating for another another chance because they've already made their mind up and they've already moved on. Usually by the time it gets to me, uh, it, it's kind of come downhill. And so it was the same situation with this. Uh, my really only thing I wanted to know was, okay, explain to me why. Because I think in every situation in life, you need to learn, uh, learn from it. And, you know, if you do that, you'll be better off. And so I did not try to advocate. I just wanted to know what was the thinking and why. And at that point, you know, it was it was really time to move on because by the time I got it, I'm pretty sure that those conversations were had at a high level. And by the time I got it, it was like, okay, let's just pass it on. And, you know, they've already moved on. So it was time for me to do that also. You are, uh, you're very close with Joe Testor. He's, you've worked with him at the SEC Network. You've been friends for a while. Um, how did you feel about seeing that Joe was also going to be reassigned elsewhere? Yeah, you know, Joe Joe and I are like family, man. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when Joe and I and Jason were put together, um, you know, we were a team. And, and usually what happens, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, you know, you're viewed as a team. And so I, I felt bad that uh, not only that I was not going to be on Monday Night Football, but also Joe, you know, because I, I realized that the broadcaster, uh, or should I say play-by-play guy, is different than the athlete. Like, I didn't go to school for this, man. I went, to, I, I went to LSU to play football, and, you know, I got done playing football, and it was like, what, what am I going to do next? And it's like, hey, you know, you kind of like talking to people. Let's see if we can get into some radio. And I started doing local radio, so this was kind of a second career. Whereas Joe, you know, this has kind of been Joe's um, lifelong thing as far as being a, a broadcaster in journalism. And so um, I'm pretty sure, I don't know for a fact because I haven't asked him, but I'm pretty sure he views it or felt different about it in some shape or form than I did. And so um, I think that, you know, for me, it, it, I just felt bad for him because I, I realized that, you know, regardless of, of, of how um, 
each broadcast or each play-by-play guy is viewed, you know, there's only so many of these spots um, in this business. And, and for him to have one and then it'd be taken away, I just kind of felt bad. We've talked about this before, Booger. In fact, on the uh, podcast that you um, you did with me a couple – I don't have the date in front of me, but when we did that podcast, the Monday Night Football job has a ton of uh, scrutiny. And you um, dealt with scrutiny, obviously, as a professional athlete. And I wonder, um, as uh, you know, you would see yourself or at least be told that you were trending on Twitter – and seeing whatever commentary there was on the group's uh, performance in the booth, what was it like for you for the first time in your broadcasting career, not your athletic career, but your broadcasting career, to face that kind of scrutiny? Well, you know, here's the thing about it is that, um, and it's kind of funny, um, I go back to when I first realized that as a young athlete that I was different, not that I was better, or or anything like that, but that I was different. I was 13, and you know I was getting ready to go go from junior high to high school. And you know you looked at you're the biggest fish in that pond, and it was different. The attention that I I received was different. Didn't necessarily like it. I was a short little fat kid with an afro back in the day. So someone telling me that I'm better. I mean seriously, someone looking at me like I'm different and putting me on a pedestal. I was very uncomfortable with that. And so you fast forward throughout high school, you know, I get recruited, go to LSU. At LSU, I started like 25, 30 games in a row, and then I got benched. And then, you know, all the stories are written from a negative standpoint. And that was really the first time that the star player had to deal with the criticism. And, man, I struggled for like a couple weeks, man. This was probably – this was 1997. Like, I struggled with that. And it was like a really – uh, eye-opening learning experience, and but it taught me a lot. It taught me just a, a, about where to view the criticism, how to view the criticism, where to view the accolades, and, and, and how to keep them in perspective. You fast forward to my NFL career, man, and and, and we're rolling. I'm a first-round pick, and you know, kind of throughout that career, they you know, as a defensive tackle, you never want to see anyone drafted at your position. So you see someone drafted uh, in the first few rounds as a defensive tackle during your career. You're like, okay, that that's probably not a good sign for you. Like, that's what we all think. And then I get traded from Tampa to Indy, and whoa, you know, the negative thing. He's a first-round bus and all that. And I'll tell you the whole story to say that I, 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 I was prepared um, throughout my entire NFL career for all the things that happen or are going to happen to me in life. Because I truly believe sports are a, a great microcosm of the life we live. So getting to your original question about the criticism, like I'm seasoned to it, man. Like I'm, I'm hard and I'm calloused up to it, good and bad. Like if someone said, um, hey, man, you know, Booger did a great job. I, I'll give you a prime example. Uh, I think it was the, um, uh, I think it was the Green Bay-Detroit game this past season and we had a really really good conversation just John Perry and I about the referees and I think it was a call on Trey Flowers and you know I I just kind of just gave my opinion and talked you know I didn't think the refs did a really good job and John Perry and I went back and forth and a lot of people uh were really kind of taken back because I was as outwardly critical of the refs and kind of called it how I saw it and people were like yeah that's a nice job that really didn't affect me in one way or another because 
I'm just calling the game how I see it. And so on the flip side, when it's negative, and, and, and by the way, anybody who says they don't see it is lying. Like we all, as an athlete or a broadcaster, we all hear and see different things. The key to it is, does it affect you and how can you not let it affect you? And so I'd say all of that to tell you to this point that I saw the criticism. I saw some of the accolades when, there were, when they were there, but it didn't affect me because I've learned over the course of almost 30 years, because I'm 42, so when I was 13, I right had 29 years, I've learned during those 29 years, man, of, of how to keep things in perspective and understanding that I, I need to know um, who to listen to, who not to listen to, where the criticism comes from, and when it, when I do get it from the right places, how to pay attention to it and adjust. So, no, nah, man, it, it really didn't bother me. You know, back when I was in, in 1997, uh, it affected the hell out of me. Like, I, I really didn't know how to handle it. But in, in, in 2019, 2020, it honestly doesn't bother me, Richard. I appreciate that answer, uh, uh, and I thank you for that. A couple more things on Monday Night Football, and then we'll just move on. Um, what what did you learn most from this experience? And that could either be bigger, um, something technical about the, the 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 technical side of of being a live game analyst at the highest levels in the NFL, or maybe it was something about just the overall larger experience of being uh, of having one of the sort of big A jobs in your industry. Well, I, I think I learned a lot. I, I'll start with the just the overall. Um, highest level type job as far as the scrutiny is concerned, you're always going to be scrutinized. And, you, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk about wanting to be uh, be the man in the arena. You know, when, when, you, when you're the man in the arena and, and there is no one else, you know, usually we're in the arena with a team. But when you're the man in the arena or, or uh, uh, you're part of a group with you and your broadcast team in the arena, uh, you got to be able to deal with everything and, and everybody's looking at you. And there is a level of um, there is a level of accomplishment and a level of um, of feeling, man, as a player when you're on the field and there's a hundred thousand people in the stands watching you, and there is thirty million people on on television viewing you. You never really get that when you leave the game. When you're in a job, when you're in the A job and you're the only game on, it's the closest I've ever been since I retired to having that feeling again. And, man, that is a super positive. And anybody, anybody who's in that position, uh, albeit uh, Michaels and Collins were Romo and Nance or Buck and Aikman, when you're the only game on and uh, everybody's watching you as a player, that is the closest you will ever feel to running out of the tunnel again. I felt that being on Monday Night Football, and that's something I will never, ever, ever trade for anything, regardless of the outcome. Um, as far as the technical aspect of it, and, and people in the business will understand this, um, calling a football game, especially when you're a standalone game, it, it, it's, it's way more than analyzing a football game. Like, Monday Night Football is, is a game, but it's, an, it's also a, a show. It's an entertainment show. And so there's so much more that goes into it than just football. Um, if it were just football, yeah, it would be a lot simpler. And people often say, hey, we just want the game. Why does ESPN or CBS or NBC have to show all the graphics and all these different elements and all these different packages? And all? Well, that's because it's a show. 
and the director and the producers are putting on a show because guess what? This is entertainment. And you know this, Richard, this is entertainment. Now, for the masses, we just want football. But for everyone else that's tuning in, it's entertainment. For all the, all the, the women and, and a lot of the guys that didn't play, this is entertainment. And so when you talk about a play, a play happens, you have probably about two to two and a half seconds before you get an opportunity to speak, analyze, and know exactly what happens during the play. And then you got to be able to intelligently explain to America what you see and mm, maybe how it happened, why it happened. And then by then, if you don't do it in those two or two and a half seconds, the producer or director is moving on and, and we're going forward. And so I think the one thing people don't realize, and I'm sure you do, is the speed of which a broadcast happens. Um, we often hear about as an athlete the speed of the game. The speed of the game is, is tremendous. It, 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 it accelerates exponentially from high school to college and college to pro. And what I would say is that when you're in the broadcast booth, it's even faster because not only do you have to focus on football, you have to focus on someone in your ear uh, telling you, hey, we got this package coming up next, this graphic, this, this. Meanwhile, all you're doing as an analyst is looking at the football field, trying to figure out, hey, why did Lamar Jackson, why was he able to come around a corner? And, and is there something there where you can teach and explain to your audience? And so just to kind of give just a little glimpse, that's, that's how the broadcast goes together. Now, everyone sitting at home may not know that, but as someone who's who's been inside the truck, which I'm sure you have, as someone who's sat in the broadcast booth and watched teams do games, it is an entertainment show. There's a lot going on. And I think the biggest thing you learn and the biggest thing that you get comfortable with the more you do it is the speed at which it moves. And oftentimes when you hear football players say, year two, the game slows down. Well, you know what? I didn't get an opportunity to get a year two where the game could slow down even more. And I think when you look at the fact that um, there was, what did we do? We did two preseason games, 16 regular season games, and a play, playoff game. So we did 19 games. Out of the 19 games we did, I, I've actually I've watched each one of them twice. There are probably four to five moments that if, I, if you gave me a do-over, I would do them over. And in year one of doing that job, I feel pretty good about that. Now, it wasn't perfect. I will be the first to admit it was not perfect. However, when you do 19, 19 sessions of three-hour live TV, three-and-a-half-hour live TV, and it's your first year of doing it on your own, and so that, I don't know, whatever the number is, however many hours that is, that's, you know, what, 60, 70, 80 hours of television, and there's only three or four or five moments that you could have back, I'll live with that. And, and so I think those are the biggest things that you take away. And if I get an opportunity, uh, if and when, to do and, and be a game analyst again, I'll be better at it next time. What's, the, what's number one on that list, if I could ask, the moment that you wish you could have back, if I can give you one? Yeah, you know what, Richard, I, I'll go to the uh, last game, you know, the playoff game against Buffalo. You know, I, I think we had a really good broadcast overall. There were so many good moments from myself and Joe and John Perry and, and Lisa. You know, but when you get toward the end of the game and, 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 and the moment um, the moment is at its height and, and the game is kind of in the balance, you, you know, there was a call where it was, um, it was second down, and, and I suggested – that on uh, second down was ending, and I suggested on third down that they go up, run a draw, 
and then spiked the ball, which would have spiked it on fourth down, and it would have been a turnover on downs instead of allowing him to kick the field goal. And it was one of those things where, you know, when, when I talked about earlier in this podcast about the speed of the game, well, up in the broadcast booth, I couldn't see the down and distance marker, and so I was relying on the monitor. And when I glanced at the monitor, the monitor, the down and distance had not changed, and so I assumed that I it was a, it was still on the previous down, which would have given me an opportunity to do what I wanted to do, run the draw on second down, spike it on third down, and then kick the field goal on fourth down. And so, you know, you live and you learn. Um, but the speed of the game in, in, in that booth, the speed of the game on these broadcasts are one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know. Um, you know, but if I had that one to do over, you know, just kind of take a beat, you know, 1,001, uh, either you can get on the, you know, get on the intercoms and, and, and you know, do your talk back and kind of figure out what down it is, or you can, you know, wait a beat and the down and distance will change on your screen. And so I uh, wish I had that one to do over, but I don't, but, you live and you learn. And if and when I get an opportunity to do this job again or do a job similar to that, because it's, that there's more broadcast than just Monday Night Football, um, I know I'll be better for it. Do you, uh, Booker, do you think, do you expect Jason Witten to pursue a, a future in broadcasting when he's done playing again? Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, Jason, you know, for as much flack as, as the outside, um, outside world gave Jason, man, Jason. Uh, Jason is one intelligent football player, man. Like I learned so much from him in, in, in the time that we spent together and the conversation that we had off the field um, and, and, and off camera. Um, I, I think Jason Witten can do whatever he wants to do. He can coach. He can be in ownership. Uh, if he wants to get back in the broadcast booth, he can. Um, and, and, you know, for people to say, well, you, you know, you were, he was terrible in, in, in year one. I just want you to find me someone else um, who in year one of whatever profession they were in uh, that were at their best in year one. Like, no, I don't care how great you think someone is. Like, nobody has been at their best in year one. And so there's always going to be room for improvement in whatever you do. It's just about, you know, are you willing to, as a, as a organization, as a boss, as a president, as a network, take time to cultivate um, said talent or said employee. What um, you have a couple of years left on your ESPN deal. Um, for you, what do you hope is next? What kind of assignment? Not you don't have to be specific unless you want to be specific. But what kind of assignment do you hope that you'll be doing heading forward? Well, I cut my teeth, man, in the studio, and so it, I'm 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 looking forward to getting back in the studio, whether that's NFL and or college football. Um, I, I think ultimately that's where. Um, that's where I'm going to go. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I've been doing studio work since I was 12. You know, we just call it sitting around on the porch talking to your friends. As we grew up, we are talking sports. And it's, it's funny. Like, my buddies call me all the time, you know, back when I was in the studio. And they're like, dude, like, we've, we've had this conversation, like, a hundred times back in Louisiana sitting on the back porch, whether it was, you know, talking about college football or, back, or, or talking about, um, you know, talking about Brady and Manning back in the day. Like, we've had all these conversations. So that's like second nature. So when you talk about the years of experience or your first or second year doing something, like I've had so many years of doing studio. Studio to me is like second nature. So uh, I, I look forward to um, doing some form of that NFL and or college. Uh, maybe one, maybe just a combination of both. I'm not sure yet. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i want to ask you about college football obviously because um you played at lsu national champions this year you did college football obviously for the sec network um how do you, and you know, you're a really good person to talk to because you play and like in, had you been born, you know, whatever, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later, you'd be in this position. How do you feel right now as we're speaking um, on the prospect of college football coming back and these players sort of being asked to come back to practice, being asked to come back to play on campus in 2020? Well, I think most of us are selfish. I mean by that is that everybody is devising a plan to social distance uh, or, or, or for social distancing. You know, Ohio State is talking about instead of the horseshoe being 110,000, we're going to have 25. So basically what you're telling me is we're going to try to create a plan for the fans to social distance themselves, but we're going to make the athletes and the trainers and the coaches uh, and you're going to have 125 people on each sideline, and then we're going to get on the field with 22 people at a time, and we're going to hit each other, and we're going to bleed, and we're going to sweat, and we're going to breathe on each other, and the athletes are not going to social distance. So it's okay for them to um, to kind of have that physical combat, but it's not okay for the fans. I, I just think that you know America right now, because we're so deprived for entertainment, that we're trying to figure out a way in sports. Um, and, and, and some sports, you you can do it, okay? Baseball, they're trying to do it. I get it. Uh, golf, you can do it. But football, man, like you can't social distance in football. And so in football, we're going to social distance the crowd, but it's going to be okay for the players not to do that. And I, I just think that we're going we're gonna to make it such or we're going to convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing because economically – Colleges and universities have to have football. Economically, networks and um, you know owners, billionaires, all these people have to have sports because of the impact that it's going to play in our lives. And so, if I were a seventeen or eighteen year old kid, I'm pretty sure I would want to go out and play. But if, I, as a parent, if I had a seventeen or eighteen year old, the question I would ask is really simple: Why do we have to social distance the crowd? but we're not going to do it with my kid on the field. 
And until I got a good answer for that, I'm really not sure I would allow my kid to play. Because it, it just doesn't seem it just doesn't seem right to me, Richard, that that like we're gonna make all these uh exceptions for the crowd, but it's like, hey players, y- y'all jump on the field and hit each other and, and bleed and, and sweat and just kinda run into each other and then we're only doing it for the economic impact and the entertainment um of each other. Because if this were truly about safety, here's what we would say. We would say, you know what? This thing has killed a lot of people. And there are a lot of people that have been affected. Okay? We want to make sure that we don't lose any more lives than we have to. So you know what? Sports, although we love our sports and it's money and, and, and all these different things, let's figure out a way to put sports on the back burner and try to save as many lives as possible. But that's not going to happen because, and I get it, and I, I understand the argument is going to be, well, life has got to move on. This is, this is a virus just like the flu. And, okay, but it's not like the flu, okay? It, 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 it sounds like the flu, but it, it's not the same as the flu. So people are going to make a lot of different arguments to support whatever side they're on. I just think the number one thing people can't argue against is safety. And, and, and I think that somehow, some way, we're going to convince ourselves that it's okay for 17 to 21-year-old young men to play in stadiums that are half empty, and it just not, it, 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 it's, it, it's not going to seem right on so many levels when you watch you know, fans that are socially distant and players that are knocking each other upside the head and sweating, each other, sweating on each other and breathing on each other. Yeah, not to mention these guys are not paid workers. That's why I'm, I'm specifically talking about the college player. Now, the NFL players, you're a grown man. You know, you're, you're McFarlane, Inc., you're Brady, Inc. You, you decide what you want to do. But we're talking about amateurs here, okay? And I think that, that's, a, that's a bigger difference. As a grown man, I can make that decision. When I'm a 17-, 18-year-old kid, okay, yeah, technically I'm kind of grown, but guess what? I'm not necessarily to the point where I'm my own company. I'm still under the supervision of a coach and still getting parental guidance from my folks back home. So that's a little different for me. You know, Booker, one of the things that sort of I've always noticed from um, college football broadcasts, not everybody does this, but you do see it a lot, and that is um, what I would sort of describe as sort of the godding up of the college football coach. Um, So often I feel like there are many broadcasters who sort of reflexively believe everything the college football coach says or stands for, and the reality is, I mean, all you have to do is have eyes to see that, um, you know, um, not everybody is, 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 is a saint here, and not everybody is correct, and there are times where the players are correct, but I feel like I see that far more in the colleges than I do with the pros, so my question for you would be, one, do you agree with that? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, and two, if you do agree with that, why is that? Uh, well, first of all, I, I, I don't agree with it. Um, I, I think we've, we've gotten to a point where the college football coach, because of the, 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 the tradition, the pageantry, the, um, the importance uh, of, of winning um, for certain fan bases, it's become like a god. And I don't agree with it. And, and certain schools and certain fan bases put – such a premium on winning just because just because they can say and they can brag that our school uh, won a national championship or our school beat beat this team. Um, and you know when, when you look at the top of college football, I think there's a hierarchy. Um, just like just like in life, okay. I think there's a hierarchy. I think you have you know 
Dabo and you had Saban and when Urban Meyer was there, you had him and Brian Kelly and Kirby Smart and Orgeron and Lincoln Riley. Like you got the hierarchy. And and I think in those fan bases, um, and in those um regional settings where those schools are, um, to a certain extent, those guys are looked at as, as gods and they can do no wrong. And regardless of what happens, um, they almost have an effect that they can do or say anything as long as they win. And I think that that's a dangerous spot for our country to be in from a, from a, from a college athletic standpoint where the college football coach who is basically in charge of amateur athletes where you're supposed to mold and develop young men. The only thing you're judged off of is winning and the decisions that you make in and around winning. I think that's a dangerous spot. I do not agree uh, how that is set up. However, um, you know, when it comes to broadcasters and how we view these college football coaches, oftentimes in the broadcast, you have a guy um, analyzing the game who has been impacted uh, and or developed by a college football coach. So they relate to how that college coach is, i.e., if you have a guy who played for Urban Meyer and Urban Meyer is on the sideline and, and Urban Meyer may be, uh, you know, during, during, the situ- during the times at Ohio State where Urban Meyer was vilified for some of the things that he did, there may be a, a moment where the, where the analyst um, would not go, quote-unquote, go in or demean Urban Meyer just because he knows Urban Meyer personally, number one. Number two, just because he's learned or been taught or developed by Urban Meyer. And, and so I just think that you know, when you have an analyst, especially on a collegiate level, and these guys have been impacted so closely by college coaches and they can reflect and they can relate to the impact that the college coach has on the 17- to 21-year-old, I think there's a hesitancy for that, um, that analyst to – uh, do anything but put the coach on a pedestal or do anything but look at the coach as a god. It, it, it's not necessarily right, but that's kind of how it is just because I, I think there's an emotional and personal attachment more so in college football than there will ever be in pro football when it comes to that. Let's finish up with this, Booger. You um, you played in Tampa Bay. Uh, you live in Tampa Bay. You are very, very familiar, obviously, with that area. And you would have a unique insight into sort of the Bucks organization. But Tom Brady's now in Tampa is far and away the biggest transaction of the NFL offseason, arguably one of the biggest transactions ever in the history of the NFL offseason. What is that experience going to be like for Tom Brady? I think it's going to be really good, man, because I think Tom Brady was in New England. And for so many years, he had to conform and do things the Patriot way. And he did it, and, and he won a lot. But I think any time in life you get an opportunity to do something different. I think there's an excitement. Uh, there's a level of intrigue. There's a level of um, curiosity from Tom Brady. Can I do it a different way? Okay, can I win without Bill? And, you know, for the people that say that, that says he has nothing to prove, I get that. He has nothing to prove about winning or about being the greatest of all time. But there's a part of Tom Brady who wants to do it on his own. So I think he has that to prove to himself. If that's the only person he has to prove it to, uh, he's going to come to Tampa, man, and he's going to be in a position where he's going to have more talent than he's ever had, uh, I think, collectively. You know, when you look at the tight end room, you look at the wide receiver room, you look at, um, you know, what they have uh, as an organization, a young defense, he's going to get a chance to play in warm weather. And I know he struggled down in Miami, 
But you, you gotta, you, you can't tell me that an athlete wouldn't want to play in uh, 75 degrees and sunshine the majority of, of your season because he's going to get that. I can tell you now. Like, it's 95 degrees in Tampa today. It's great weather. You're going to enjoy waking up every day. Um, you, you're going to enjoy just walking outside. Like, from a mindset standpoint, I think Tom Brady may be in the greatest place he's ever been. Just from an overall athletic standpoint, yeah, he's gotten older, but he's going to have more weapons than he's ever had. He's going to wake up and go outside and probably feel better in November in Tampa, still 80 degrees, sunshine. So I, I just think that he's in a position now where he's going to enjoy this season. I don't know whether they're going to win a Super Bowl or not. I don't think anyone knows that. But I think from an enjoyable standpoint, he's going to enjoy this season as much as he's enjoyed any season in his career, uh, both on the field and off the field. And, and to me, when you're in year 20 and you're, what, 43 years old, what more can you ask for? Like, I, I don't think there's anything more, if you're Tom Brady, that you can ask for to be in a position uh, than to leave a team where, that you've taken the nine Super Bowls and you've won six and now you get an opportunity to move to Tampa, Florida, live in Derek Jeter's house, and experience what you're going to experience here. I, I, I think he's got he's to gotta pinch himself every morning when he wakes up now. Hmm. That, uh, that weather sounds pretty good to somebody living in Toronto, Booger. I'm not going to lie to you there. Well, it, it, here's the thing about it, man. It's, uh, I mean, you know, you're living up in Toronto. Is it still snowing there yet? No, it's we've we have finally uh, we've crossed into the sixty degree mark. It's a, it's a it's a glorious day here in uh, in the north. So, uh, but uh, yeah, don't sleep on snow in May because it still could happen. It's it's not over. Uh, it's not over uh, yet. Last one on this, and my last question for you. And I appreciate your time. How would you rate Tampa as a media town? Uh, you know, the thing about Boston, New England area, um, that is an obsessed sports market with a ton of media people, and I would argue Boston may be the toughest sports media town in the country. Now Brady goes to Tampa, how, and you worked in the Tampa area. Obviously, you did radio for, the, uh, for a while. What's, what's the Tampa area like, in your opinion, in terms of sort of a media town? Oh, man, Tampa's laid back, man. I, I mean, you have your beat writers just like, any, uh, just like any town. But overall, from the standpoint of uh, just the level of scrutiny, like once you answer the question, uh, one time, you're not going to get five or six guys that are going to ask the same questions. For most, for the most part, people here are what I call friendly. That doesn't mean that they're not going to ask the questions, but they're not going to ask the same questions seven different ways. Like the, the same guys that covered me are still here covering this team now. Guys like Rich Stroud and, and Greg Allman. You, you have a couple of different people, uh, some new people. But the Roy Cummings of the world, the Ira Kaufman, like those guys covered me back in nineteen, uh, back in nineteen ninety nine when I got to Tampa, and they're still here, and they've built up credibility because they they understand this that Tampa is not a huge town. Um, you have to live, um, you have to live amongst these athletes, and you're going to see them because there's only like Tampa has two or three malls, but there's really only one big mall. Like there's only a certain, uh, certain amount of restaurants you can go to. Like if you want to go to the nice restaurants, there's only a certain amount. It's not like New York or L.A. where there's hundreds of them. And so you have to live amongst these people. And so do you want to do your job? Yes. But I think they do a, 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 do a great job of being very, very fair. And I think that's the, that's the thing as an athlete that you want is um, 
is for um, your media people to go out and be fair and cover you and, and, just, and just give you, uh, you know, give you the coverage you deserve. And I think the people in this town do that. Booger McFarland is a ESPN, NFL, and college football analyst. Um, he's always been gracious with his time with me. And um, Booger, I, uh, I wish you nothing but the best heading forward. Uh, we're going to see you on ESPN's airwaves in some form uh, over the next uh, couple of years. And knock on wood, we'll get football back and it'll be safe and healthy for the players. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing your work. Thanks so much for joining me today on the uh, Sports Media Podcast and uh, continued good health to you and yours down there in Tampa. Without a doubt, Richard. Appreciate it, buddy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, as I said at the top, Barry Landis is uh, the lead race producer for Fox's NASCAR coverage. He has been at Fox... uh, since the beginning, joined Fox in 1994, and in addition to being that network's lead producer for NASCAR, he's done football. I'll ask him about this while, well, but I think he's done football almost since the start. I know he was uh, a producer for Pat Summerall way back in the day, and uh, has done Kenny Albert's team, and we'll get into that. And Barry Landis joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. And Barry, you are where are you right now? Darlington, Charlotte. I I am down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I'm live in New Jersey, and I'm down here for uh, well, the foreseeable future anyway. Working out of our Charlotte studio. <laughs> All right, enjoy the warmth. Um, so I uh, as I wrote for the Athletic, um, I was really really impressed by Fox's coverage of Darlington, particularly for all the different sort of variables that you guys had to uh, juggle given multiple staffers in multiple cities. So let's start with a, a big macro question here, Barry. Right now, given sort of we're in this new paradigm, what keeps you up at night as a producer? Well, I think just the overall communication. Uh, I think successful broadcasts, whether you're doing the NFL or, or whether it's NASCAR or, or, or any sport, is the rapport that the that my position when pretty much everybody on the production team has with the, the announcers, our, our face, our voice. And, you know, to me, that is probably uh, the biggest challenge. Um, Because at the end of the day, my job is to see a sport kind of through the lens of how my announcers see it. Uh, Nobody really cares necessarily what I want out of the event. It's the people up front. So I have to, learn and and pay attention to what their sensibilities are and how they view a certain event and try and support them as much as possible. Um, So the communication part is probably the most challenging. Now, being down here in Charlotte, I am with the announcers, which is the reason why I am here working out of the Charlotte studio. 
just the ability to have that face-to-face time, um, you know, reading body language and facial expressions during a conversation helps out tremendously. But the other parts of production, uh, part of our production team being in Los Angeles and then uh, Artie and our technical group being on site in Darlington, definitely the communication part of it. Um, uh, you know, the, the technical aspects, there's people way smarter than me that, that uh, you know, cross their T's and dot their I's and make sure that we get on the air and they're fantastic. But I think overall, just being remote from the event itself, and that's how we've done it forever, and, and picking up on the vibe and being around each other, I think makes for a healthy broadcast. So at night, I do worry about everybody staying connected for sure. How would you um, self-evaluate the two races as we're taping this on um, on Thursday, May 21st? How would you self-evaluate the two races that Fox has done so far? I, it, it exceeded my expectations. Uh, I think to the average person sitting at home wanting to be entertained by sporting uh, events, uh, it probably didn't make any difference to them that uh, the tape machines were in Los Angeles and the cameras were in Darlington, South Carolina, and the announcers were in Charlotte. I'm proud of the way the group pulled together and put on a broadcast, and I think many people would be shocked to find out that that was the scenario in which we did it. Um, so I think that, that it exceeded my expectations as far as from the technical side of things, uh, which was a huge undertaking. And I think even last night, or Wednesday night, I mean, um, you know, we picked up the speed and everybody's becoming more and more comfortable with the environment. Uh, I can't praise, you know, our technical group enough, our production team, and, and certainly the announcers for not blinking or making excuses and, and just wholeheartedly um, uh, doing a broadcast that was like none other we've ever done before. So. I, I give them high high grades, high grades. <laughs> Mike uh, Mike Joy and Jeff Gar- Jeff Gordon are with you in Charlotte. The race is obviously being held, or these races this week are being held in Darlington. In your opinion, what are the specific challenges of calling a race off a monitor and calling a race where you're not in a booth, you know, far above the track? Well, it is a huge difference. And as you look at these kind of productions that uh, that are out there where you are looking at monitors, it is difficult because in the booth, obviously, you're seeing a wide picture of the entire track. You're able to pick things up. You feel the event. I don't care what event it is, but you we've all been to sporting events, and you almost feel when things are about to happen or things are getting uh, hot and uh you know, your eye might slide to the side and look at a car going into turn one, but also swing back and see another car going into turn three just to check and see what they're doing. So not being there, I think, is uh, it's, it's definitely a challenge for them. They have to work off the monitors. Um, Artie and our, and our camera crew, they're doing a fantastic job of following the important parts of the race and, and giving us inter- interesting shots. But at the end of the day, just not being able to look out that window to see cars come down pit road and, and see what kind of speed they're carrying and was it a good stop, I think uh, can create a little bit of hesitancy in, in analyzing things. But Jeff, Mike, and, and Larry uh, McReynolds, uh, I mean, they haven't they haven't missed a beat, really. And truthfully, Richard, I, I would give Larry McReynolds a ton of credit in this scenario. Larry has been working – 
remotely on our broadcasts for over a year now from the Charlotte studio. And he's imparted a lot of um, wisdom to Jeff and Mike and how to use the monitors. And over the past year and a half, he has created a rock-solid um, set of feeds that come in that he has found to be the most important. So that really helped us in setting up the studio and giving our announcers eyes at the event. You mentioned Artie Kempner, that's your director. He's on site, so he's cutting. Uh, you know, he's cutting the basically the uh, the broadcast. You know, camera here. You know, camera A, camera B, whatever, whatever sort of nomenclature you guys use. When as the producer, if, for people who don't know, the producer and director really work in sync for all these sports productions they sit they they sit next to each other usually in a production truck that's not happening here can you see Artie on a like visually do you have eyes on him Barry on some kind of uh video or are you guys just communicating solely through uh through audio through a headset you know I I do have eyes on him and quite honestly I don't use it very often because right next to me I have an external speaker so I hear him 100% of the time. It's not a push to talk. It's not a, you know, hey, Artie, you know, what are we up to here? We hear each other. He does the same with me. Um, so even though he's not sitting right next to me, it's kind of funny. When the technical crew said, hey, let's set up your position in this, in this office, I'm looking at the speakers, I'm looking at the, the monitors and everything, and obviously I want to recreate the environment that we have in the production truck. And, you know, without even thinking, this big speaker sits right to my right, normally where Artie is sitting. Um, so although it's not like the real thing, it's pretty darn close to it. Um, and, and, and it's actually working quite well. Um, you, you know, the hard part is when you're sitting next to somebody and you know that they're words are directed towards you, there's a body language. You know, you can almost see someone open up and kind of look over at you and glance when you're working through a speaker, that's a little bit of a gray area. You know, is he talking to a camera operator? Am I talking to a tape operator and not him? Those are the things that create a little bit of an issue, but I think we've hit a pretty good rhythm very early on. Um, so, yeah, trying to recreate sitting next to him in the truck has been kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing. I, I really didn't think about it until I actually got down here, and lo and behold, that's the way the room ended up getting set up. One of the most important things for NASCAR is the audio of the race. The race fans at home want to hear, um, you know, they want to hear the engines revving. If there's a crash, they obviously want to sort of get a sense of how the impact is. You in this in this sport in particular, you have access with the driver, so you want to have that connection between the driver and the and the reporter or the driver in the booth. Uh, the audio to me was really good. Um, that was something I was sort of listening for, and I thought it it felt like. Uh, exactly the same as it would be during a, a race in a non-COVID-19 time. Why did that work so well, in your opinion? Well, this is a kind of a two-sided answer. First of all, 1994, when we started Fox Sports, one of the, the bedrock uh, portions of the foundation of what we were building was on audio. And throughout the years, uh, we've managed to get the best audio people. Uh, we're constantly pushing audio to a new level in all of our sports. Um, I think every, every year you see awards given out at Emmy Awards and everything, and our audio teams are, are typically the recipients of it. So that has always been a huge sense of pride for the network, and I think we've put out the best audio period across the board. So Kevin McCloskey is our lead uh, mixer, and 
he does obviously a phenomenal job. You heard it. Uh, I think the reason why is because our audio group spends so much time just talking about events throughout the normal course of a year, pre-COVID-19. So this was seen as a challenge, but also at the same time, they were somewhat ready for it. Um, NASCAR is is a great learning ground for audio because on a regular weekend, we have so many external microphones. We have sub-mixers. We have radio uh, producers and, and, and sound guys that are just working with car radios. So we were up and running. It was just a matter of the technology of getting it all back to Kevin's board in Darlington to put out the best sound possible. And clearly, clearly it was done. Um, so I think the emphasis over the last 25, 26 years that Fox has put into the audio portion of things really paid off and it continues to pay off um, because that certainly was one of the highlights of the race. The other side to it, too, is I, I see a bunch of uh, uh, articles and discussions about when sports returns, if there's no fans, how will you deal with no fans, piping in noise, all that stuff. Well, for NASCAR, this is what we do every week. Uh, unfortunately, you don't hear the fans because of the car engines and, and, and the sound. So for us, the mix of the show and the tone of the show really didn't change a whole lot from what we normally do, as opposed to a football game. You know, when the uh, w- when the away team has the ball and fans are going crazy and trying to screw up the snap count, that, that that's not an element in a regular NASCAR race. So I think for the fan at home, it was really rather difficult to even tell if anybody was in the stands or not other than seeing it visually. One of the things that I noticed, um, especially pre-race, was you guys made a decision, and as a viewer, one I appreciate, to show what was going on in terms of drivers and crews uh, wearing masks, wearing protective, some kind of protective covering over their face. Your reporter, Reagan Smith, had a, uh, had a protective covering with, with Fox's logo on it. Um, I think, you know, I understand NASCAR made... Uh, you know, NASCAR basically made that a requirement. If the racers wanted a race, if the crews wanted a cruise, there's fines. Regardless, the to me, it should have been showed. It's that that is what was going on at the track. If you're going to document the track, can't, in my opinion, sort of run away and shy from that. But as the producer, ultimately, this is you know, this is your decision as to what to show, what not to show. And I wanted to just get some insight into how you were going to approach um, the visuals of a lot of these guys wearing uh, masks, something Americans have never seen before in a NASCAR race? Well, believe me, it was a, it was a decision made uh, through a lot of communication with, uh, you know, Brad Zager and, and Eric Shanks and Jacob Ullman and Richie Zients. So, you know, we talked about this at great lengths. And I think the important part was to bring sports back in, in a very healthy manner uh, we've all heard opinions out there regarding masks and gloves and social distancing, and we listened to them. And we knew that if an event was going to go off and it was going to be as safe and as clean as possible, it was a necessary element. And at the end of the day, that's our job. Uh, you know, we're not going to over-sensationalize certain things. We're here to produce sporting events, and if that's an element in the sporting event, it belongs on television. And uh, I was impressed with how Fox and NASCAR worked together to create that environment and get the message out that, you know, hey, we're going back to work here. Um, But we all didn't wake up on 
uh, you know, pick a date, May 15th, and somebody declared COVID-19 over. Uh, we're all very aware that this is still out there. And it's a it's an attempt and a smart way of going back and getting the the sports world back up and running. And we have to follow the guidelines. And to me, that's a that's a huge message to sports fans and just to just to people in general. I mean, to my kids that we've got to start figuring out a way to carry on in this world now uh, and be smart about how we we go about our business and how we socialize until we get things somewhat under control and to me, it's, it was a huge storyline, and, and I'm glad that everybody was in lockstep and we covered it the way we did, because I think we showed everybody that, uh, you know, you know, hearing the word mask doesn't mean you can't have fun, doesn't mean that you can't enjoy an event or enjoy each other. It's just something that we have to do until, uh, you know, science figures out a way for us to hopefully resume uh, a normal livelihood. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, uh, two more two more quick topics here. Um, you mentioned that one of the most important things you consider for your job is finding chemistry with your on-air talent. You um, Fox went through a pretty significant shift over the last couple of years to go from Daryl Waltrip, who was part of your coverage for what seemed like forever, to Jeff Gordon. My guess would be that, Barry, given that you've been around the track for such a long time, you either became um, – uh, acquaintances or friendly with with Jeff Gordon over the years. He was a very very media friendly driver, but it's still it's it's different when you're working with a guy every day. What's the transition been like for you to find some kind of uh, work chemistry with Jeff Gordon? I tell you, it, it's been great. As you mentioned, Jeff was media savvy, and you know uh, he, he he was not new to the spotlight by any stretch of the imagination. But I think Jeff is just like almost every other athlete that uh, has had great success and then goes into the television world, you realize immediately that these individuals were successful on the playing field, on the track because of work ethic and their attention to detail. Very rarely. I mean, you have characters, but even the characters really care about what they're doing. And that is Jeff. I mean, he came in and said, you know, I'm not just going to do this gig because it's something I, you know, why not? People want Jeff Gordon. He wanted to be the best at it. So when you come in with that kind of attitude, it's really easy to work with someone. Um, In the transition years, when DW was still in the booth with Jeff, uh, DW was so gracious and wonderful to work with and just a great human being. I think that really helped my relationship with Jeff because I think Jeff saw that DW and I had very frank and open conversations and he trusted me and I trusted him. So I think the two years when they were both together in that booth, it might have been three, I think it might have been three, um, Jeff was able to witness that a little bit and I wasn't just some guy who works in TV who's going to try and tell him what to do. I think he saw the process. And that made all the difference in the world. 
And Jeff is a very approachable guy who absolutely racing is his life. Um, and when you have someone like that who's eager to be the best, the relationship is really easy. Um, developing that trust factor, which is the number one thing. I mean, if you're going to be in somebody's ear while they're talking to millions of people, you better be able to trust that person. It isn't going to give you some, you know, lead you down a bad path. So I think he was able to witness that for a few years with Daryl in the booth. And uh, he took to it, you know, immediately. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking to each other during the week or texting each other about certain things. Um, And he's very open about it, uh, as am I. So the relationship is really uh, taken off, and, and it's really been enjoyable to work with him. Uh, can't praise him enough. And truthfully, he's helped me uh, associate better with the current driver uh, because he raced with these guys. He knows them well. He still deals with them. And it's helped me actually get a little more personality out of the drivers because he's shed a little different light on it. He's fresh out of the garage, so to speak. Barry, have you been uh, given your uh, broadcast team yet for the NFL? Do you know the group you'll be with? No, not yet. But, uh, you know, I've, I've worked forever with Kenny Albert. And, uh, you know, hopefully hopefully Kenny and I continue to work together because uh, I, I love working with him. Talk about a trust factor. Uh, the two of us spent a lot of time just, you know, both talking sports and, and just talking about life in general. So um, I'm not real sure. Uh, but, heck, love the NFL. And I'm sure whoever they end up uh teaming me up with, uh, I'm going to enjoy the heck out of it. That's for sure. Last one for me then on that is how different are you, if you are indeed different, uh, as a producer for the NFL compared to how you are as a producer for NASCAR? That's actually a great question. Um, The sports are so different to produce um, at their core. So, uh, you know, I'm talking about calling replays and flow NASCAR, there's no timeouts to take commercials. You got to find your way, uh, you know, replay wise. When you're when you're calling replays, you know, you're not going back to the snap. Um, you know, football, you can study different defenses uh, and, and offenses and what players do what and kind of get ready. And and you're living in this 24 25 second box, uh, telling stories and replays. NASCAR is a much wider. Uh, uh, expanse when you're within it. Sometimes you go lap after lap with with maybe not a lot of action on the track. So then you become a little more of a storyteller uh, and you have to slow play things a little bit more. The two jobs, honestly, from a producing standpoint, um, technically speaking, are extremely different. But I think the core of what a producer is doesn't change at all. And that is listening to announcers, figuring out which way is the best way to go and how can I support their views, but also at the same time, interjecting some things that maybe we took out of production meetings and individual conversations and giving reminders, sometimes playing the devil's advocate. So they are extremely different. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not one of those things where somebody could be the most accomplished football producer and all of a sudden they jump in and do a NASCAR race. Uh, it would be overwhelming and vice versa. So uh, the two jobs are, are very, very different. Football, I, th- I grew up with it. I played it, you know, and, and you, you understand the rhythm of it. I think with auto racing, um, 
the rhythm of the event is the hardest thing to understand. And it's not always the leader. It could be somebody in 22nd, um, which means you might, you know, that's equivalent to in football talking about the, the left guard on, on a pass play. Um, you know, you, you jump around an awful lot and you have to have kind of a wider lens and a wider view of the event where football, the cadence of it pretty much takes you to the play each time. And occasionally you step back and look at the big picture. I think maybe NASCAR might be a little bit different where you're looking at the big picture and occasionally going in and finding that key play. So it's it's definitely a flip in roles, and it is very different for sure. No question about it. Barry, as you uh, you head forward, I certainly wish you and your team um, all the best health and to stay safe. But uh, selfishly, I'm also wishing for drivers to continue to come on the track and give the bird to other drivers because I I cannot love that visual enough. I have to. Be <laughs> I gotta tell you, I mean, it's uh, these guys are competitors. You know, they they get worked up, and I and I think in the case of uh, what we're referring to, Kyle Busch, who is probably the best driver uh, of today's drivers, made a massive error and uh, took someone out, and people were people were letting you know how they felt about it. Um, but that's the fun part of this sport. I mean, think about it. These these 40 guys live together for, for you know, 36 weeks out of the year or 40 weeks out of the year. Um, we all don't like each other, and we get on each other's nerves and all that stuff. The only difference is they're in a machine that goes 190, 200 miles an hour, and there's a lot of skin in the game. So <laughs> I'm not, I, I am not opposed to that kind of uh, um, passion, I'll call it. <laughs> Barry Landis is uh, Fox's lead race producer for its NASCAR coverage. He's also a longtime NFL producer, as he mentioned on this podcast, has worked with Kenny Albert for many, many years. Barry, you have, you've always had an interesting job, but it's a particularly interesting job in these times. I want to thank you for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast and appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to both Booger McFarland and Barry Landis for their time and for interesting conversations with both of them. If you like this kind of content, head to the archives, and I think you'll probably find something that uh, you'll be interested in. Our previous podcast was Tom Verducci on the new normal of covering baseball. Basically, Tom Verducci, uh, arguably greatest baseball writer in history, certainly the best of his generation. And he had a lot of interesting things to say on what he thinks uh, baseball will look like in terms of coverage heading forward post-pandemic. Prior to Tom Verducci, Bob Costas pretty much needs no introduction. Um, One of the iconic voices of the last 30 years. Before that, Chad Finn and I talked about uh, the NFL regular season on a television perspective and what that would mean, as well as Chad, Adam, and Craig Malamut, the creators of the great VR animated series Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, (laughs) Game of Zones. And then just go down the archives and you'll see people I think you'll uh, be interested in from ESPN Sean McDonough to Scott Van Pelt to Dr. Celine Gounder and Grant Wall on the nexus of the coronavirus in sports. Talked a lot about Tony Romo and what his contract means. And then again, Chad and Spake, Jamie Little. Just go through the whole archives. I think you'll find some stuff that you're interested in. And if you like this, please leave us a five-star review uh, and some comments. That's how the podcast continues want to thank Sean Cherry 
and Patrick Antonetti for all their work on this podcast. Thanks to Chris Corcoran and Spencer Brown and John McDermott at uh, Cadence 13 headquarters. Everybody out there, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon. This is Richard Deitch. Thanks for listening to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.